All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 16. parables of Jesus Christ were, by their very nature, intended to be hard sayings, difficult, if not always to understand, at least to accept. Jesus used the parables to stretch men's notions and personal ideas. The Bible testifies that he used them to speak to those who would listen and to those who would hear, but to be to confound those who would not. In some ways, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13 might be, not not all of 1 through 13, but the beginning of Luke 16 might be one of the most difficult parables in all the Bible to understand. Jesus frames things in a way which will stretch our associations and call us to take dramatic steps to walk in faithfulness to our Lord. There's much disagreement in the Christian world with regard to how to interpret this particular parable this evening. So what I'm going to do is we're going to walk through it. We're going to set down some facts in regard to it and then do my best to give you a sense that is both faithful to the character of God and faithful to his inspired scriptures. You're in Luke 16, beginning in verse one, the Bible says this, and he said also, Unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Now, this parable, indeed, the whole chapter is very much in the context of the lessons of chapter 15. The lessons of chapter 15, again, were both to disciples at some point and um, Pharisees at some point. In the last chapter, Jesus was speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he warned them through the parable of the angry son, as I call, as I'm calling it, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's typically called, of their resentments toward those who were lost and were in need of being found. He taught that God delights in the recovery of the wayward. And he taught that it is unjust for men to resent God for delighting in this recovery or to resent the repentant for God's delight in them. As I was continuing to meditate upon that parable, I was thinking more about this angry son and the parallels as we think of the Pharisees, which the, the, the Pharisees were the angry son, right? And I was thinking that even though this son was so close to his father in proximity, when that younger son had gone out to live in immorality and riotous living, and so was so distant from his son or from his father in proximity, yet both of those sons in heart and attitude were quite distant from their father, weren't they? And the one son comes back and aligns his heart with the father, though he had been immoral. The other son, though he had never left his father and pursued a life of debauchery, yet his heart was just as far from his father's will and love as the son who had wandered away. And here's a father calling both of his sons into fellowship, into closeness once again. For though one was close in proximity, yet in heart he was not. Well, Jesus has been speaking thus to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now he turns again to his disciples. The Bible says he said unto his disciples. 
Remember that context. We would assume then that this parable is directed more towards believers and followers, not towards those who are utterly resentful against God and refusing uh, on, on the basis of their, their desire to justify themselves, refusing God, but rather these are those that are following. These are those who are disciples. These are those who have accepted the identity of Christ. And he presents the scenario of a rich man who had a steward. Indeed, it was not, nor is it still unusual for wealthy people to have a man or woman to look over their affairs, to keep their affairs in order so that you don't necessarily keep, uh, keep a, a, a careful watch on all of the affairs of your household, but rather you have somebody to delegate the affairs of your household, perhaps um, the affairs of your money, a money manager. You say, okay, here's my money. You give it to a man and, and he diversifies it, right? He puts some in stocks and he puts some in precious metals and he puts some in, in various investments to diversify your portfolio, to make you better, to make you more secure financially to increase your wealth. And that's what this man was. He was a manager. He was a manager of this man's funds. He was a manager of this man's goods. He was a manager of this man's debts, both for and against. This steward, however, was unfaithful in his task. The Bible says that he was accused. It was accused unto the, the, the man, the master, that his steward had wasted his goods. From the text, it does not appear that this steward was necessarily deeply dishonest, not stealing his goods, just not being a good manager of his goods, just not being a good steward. He, he was living off of this man and then not really doing his job for the man of taking care of his estate, his property, his investments, his goods, his funds. He's lazy. He's ineffective, failing to put the time and the effort into truly advancing his master's interests. We continue in verse 2. And he called him, that would be the master calling the steward, and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. The master calls him to account, and the master finds that what is being said of this man is true. By all appearances, the steward has no answer. He cannot answer. Why is my money not increased? Why are these debts not paid? Why are these things the way they are? And the steward just kind of says... I don't know. He's been a bad steward. He has no justification. He's lazy. He's unjust. He's unfaithful. So the master discharges him from his service. He fires him. This man who is not worthy to look after his affairs. Now the steward doesn't have a job anymore. We, we might presume by the par parable that this, this releasement will take a little bit of time. So this man has the job for a short period of time longer before he loses it, perhaps until the man can find another steward, right? As soon as I find someone else to take your spot, you're out of here. The steward knows he doesn't have much time left. That's the idea. He doesn't have a job anymore. He is going to be removed from his position. He doesn't have much time left. Now, instead of focusing on the master, Jesus continues to focus in on the actions of this steward, this lazy, unjust bum who has just been fired. Verse 3, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. Now, this verse establishes exactly what I just told you. This establishes the legitimacy of this man's poor character. This establishes that this steward is a bum. After being fired, he says, what shall I do? How can I take care of myself? And he says, he writes off two things immediately. He says, number one, I can't go work. 
And number two, I can't go beg. To work, I no way am I going to work. And number two, I'm ashamed to beg. So I'm not going to lose my pride by begging, and I'm not going to actually do any work. So I'm in a tough spot here. How can I get a job where I can be lazy and still live? And this self-serving fear of being hungry, along with his aversion to actually work or to beg, actually motivates this bum to do something. And this is the neat thing. This, it actually motivates him to do something. He, it motivates him to get up and do something because he says, if I don't do something, I'm going to have to work or I'm going to have to beg. So what does he do? Verse 4. I am resolved what to do, he says, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He says, I've got an idea. I'm going to work right now on something. I'm going to get industrious and have initiative for a few minutes so that I can then bum off of other people again in just a little bit. So that I can then be lazy once again, and these people of whom I've done a favor will receive me into their houses. So his idea is to ingratiate himself to others so that he can live off of them when his master kicks him out. So he goes about earning their favor at his master's expense. Here's what he does, verses 5 through 7. Whoops, I'm going the wrong way on your slides here. Verses 5 through 7, it says, So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, How much owest thou, my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write four score. So here's what's happening. The steward has been released. Uh, Perhaps it's a future release date. He still has authority for a little bit longer, or at least none of the debtors actually know that this man has lost his authority yet. So he quickly calls all of these men that owe his master money together. And uh, now a good steward would have already gotten them to pay back their debt, but he's not a good steward, right? He's a lazy and unfaithful steward. So they haven't paid back their debts yet. So he calls them together. And then he asks them, asking each one, how much do you owe my master? Now a good steward would know how much each man owes his master. But he's not a good steward. He's lazy and he's unfaithful. So he doesn't know that either. But each one tells him. So the first man says, well, I owe your master a hundred measures of oil. And the steward says, here's what I'll do for you. Quickly, because I don't have much time here. Quickly, give me your bill and I will cut that bill in half. How much you owe in half. He doesn't even ask him to pay it. He just is going to cut the debt in half. No doubt the man walked away quite happy. He comes in, steward says, I'll cut your bill in half for no reason. He walks away with 50% less debt. Great. Then the next one, how much do you owe my master? The man says, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. The steward says, quickly, give me your bill. And he cuts it by 20%. He says, he goes from 100 to four score. A score is 20, four score is 80. 80 out of a hundred is, is, uh, 80%, 20% off, right? So he says, I'm going to give you 20% off. So the man uh, did nothing to earn it. And he just walks away with 20% less debt than he had before. These are happy people. Now take special note that this man has just completely stiffed his master. He's completely stiffed his master. He, there's no reason why he's cutting this debt other than to ingratiate himself to the debtors. He's not even getting the the actual excess money. He's not getting the 50%. He's only cutting the bill in half and the man walks away with with half the bill now. The Bible doesn't say the man paid paid the 50% or paid the 80%. So he is stiffing his master here. And for his master to undo that would be kind of difficult, right? This steward has just officially cut the bill 
For his master to come and say no is back up. That would be extremely difficult to do. Uh, And so he has, through an act of dishonesty, made a few new friends at the expense of his master with whom he intends to bum off for the foreseeable future. These friends whom he helped, whom he did a favor unto. Well, now the master hears about this transaction and notice his response in verse eight. (laughs) And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What just happened here? The Bible says the Lord commends the unjust steward. What? Now, at first, when I, when I used to read this, I used to just think, okay, so the steward at least got something, right? He went and said, give me 50%. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say he asked for 50%. It says he, he asked, how much is your bill? Take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Take another and write. He doesn't say, give me 50. He says, write 50 on the bill. Why would the steward commend him for doing something wisely here? Well, certainly the Lord does not commend the unjust steward for stiffing him, right? That would be nonsensical. The Lord does not commend the unjust steward for his honesty, integrity, or kindness. He commends him because he has done wisely. In other words, if if, if we're seeing this play out, it wouldn't look like this. It would not look like the unjust steward reduces the debt on his Lord's debtors for his own selfish reasons. And the Lord says, hey, good job. I was waiting for you to do that. You're a good steward after all. He doesn't say that. Rather, it looks something like this. The unjust steward reduces the debt on his Lord's debtor for his own selfish reasons. Then he packs his bags and he leaves. He shakes his hand, says, thank you for, for, for letting me be your steward for a while. And he goes and he bums off of these other people. And later, the Lord finds out as he's keeping his books what this unjust steward did, and and, and he kind of smirks. And he realizes that this bum of an unjust steward just stiffed him one last time before he left, and he says something to this effect. He says, well, at least that bum showed some initiative at the end because he never showed any for me. That's the idea here. I never saw any when he worked for me. At least that bum did something at the end of his days. At least he has enough, enough initiative to save his own skin because I would have honestly thought that he didn't even have enough initiative to do that. That's the idea here. It isn't that the Lord thought the steward has done anything good. He simply commended the bum for having enough get up and go, enough forethought, enough worldly wisdom to provide for his own future, at least if not dishonestly, right? And so ends the parable, an interesting parable, very interesting parable, especially when we see this next statement and the statements that will follow Jesus's application of this parable. Now, again, let me beat the dead horse to a pulp on this. Parables are not allegories. Everything does not have to stand for something. There is a lesson to be learned. We do not need to, nor should we necessarily try to link every actor in the parable to some spiritual reality. God is not commending spiritual bums. And if we try to draw out all of these parables into allegories, we we get into some theological problems, right? But let's walk through Jesus' application of the parable. 
It begins right in verse 8. He says, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The children of this world would be those who live for this life, right? Those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those who love mammon more than they love God. Those who have pursued the things of this world. Who love wealth. Who love honor. Who love fame. Who love power more than God. The children of light would, without question, be those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have been redeemed by the power of God by following the gospel of Christ. And Jesus' point, as he compares these two, is this. Even the most unjust and unworthy bum, when he realizes his days of ease are coming to an end, will begin to think ahead and take care of himself, even if it is at the expense of the man who's been helping him or or hiring him. Even the most unjust man has enough self-preservation in him that when it's time to either live or die, he has the initiative to live. But then he says, you know, the children of light, oftentimes, though they know that their days on this earth will end because they have this wisdom, because they've accepted Christ, so they know what Christ has taught and they they, they actually believe it, they still aren't willing to get off the couch and provide for their spiritual future. They still aren't willing to invest in the future. Even the bum... The unjust steward was willing to do something to invest in his own life livelihood after being dismissed. But he says the children of light sometimes struggle with this. They struggle to invest in in the spiritual in heaven. That's the point of the parable. The Lord does not approve of his former steward's action. Don't get confused with that. Only rather commending him for actually caring enough to do something when he needed to take care of himself. God does not approve of laziness. God does not approve of apathy. God does not approve of dishonesty. God does not approve of injustice. Rather, he is saying that even the biggest bum in this life will do something when he realizes his future depends on him getting off the couch. And yet so often the children of light, even though we know that there is coming an eternity in which the riches and joys of that eternity depend upon the things that we do in this life, we still don't do anything. We still don't spiritually invest. Now, don't mistake me and don't mistake Jesus' teaching here. Jesus is not teaching that you must do things to inherit eternal life. Remember, Jesus is speaking this to his disciples whom he calls the children of light. They're already in the faith. We're not talking about him saying that you need to work to get to heaven. The warning is that though you will enter heaven, you might very well enter and have nothing to show for it. And this is not something that bothers Christians all that much in this generation. After all, as long as we're in, we we can be tempted not to really care about the rest. Some will even call salvation fire insurance as if that's really the only thing that salvation is, right? As if as long as you get to heaven, the condition with which you enter those gates doesn't really matter. And if you believe this, you're very mistaken. You say, how bad can it be if we don't really lay up treasure in heaven as long as we're in heaven, right? As long as we're not burning for eternity. Well, this is what Jesus is saying through this parable. Care. Care. Care with all your heart. 
Care with all your soul. Care with all your might because it matters. And we don't really know what all that means. We know the, the parables of inheriting cities. We know the Bible says we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. We know that that ruling and reigning will have something to do with our faithfulness on this earth. We know what Paul says. We'll talk about it a little bit later in our service about the wood, hay, and stubble, and the gold, silver, and precious stones, and laying up treasure in heaven. We know these things, but we really don't know what it means that we will suffer loss on the day of judgment. We, it's hard to imagine that because we think of heaven as, as such a wonderful place and we think of, we are so thankful that we are redeemed from the separation, the eternal conscious torment and separation of hell and of the lake of fire eventually and we're so thankful for that and, and, and that's all right and that's all good but there is something else to it folks. There's something else here. There's rewards and there's loss. And and Jesus is giving this parable saying, you need to think about this and this needs to matter to you. If you have enough faith to believe that Jesus will take you to heaven when you die, can you have enough faith to believe that it really matters how you live for Jesus as a believer before you get there? Can you have enough faith to believe that it really matters how the disposition with which you enter through those gates? Can you have enough faith to realize that the way you live this life really matters to God? And those who choose not to live in wisdom will somehow, I can't tell you how, I can't tell you what it's going to look like. God will wipe every tear away from our eyes. The Bible says it, but somehow we will regret it. One last important mention here. Take note as well of the word wise. We spoke just this morning about the concept of wisdom being through the fear of the Lord and rooted in obedience. That's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says that the children, um, um, excuse me, uh, um, <laughs> let me get back to the verse here. Uh, the children uh, of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. He doesn't say that the children of this world are biblically wiser than the generation of light. He says they are in this generation, right? In this generation, wiser than the children of light. They're more worldly wise than we are spiritually wise sometimes, is the idea there. Worldly wisdom is very different from from divine wisdom. Worldly wisdom is the man who knew how to get what he wanted and needed to live. Survival of the fittest style. Worldly wisdom is selfish, self-serving, and pragmatic. Divine wisdom is selfless, obedient, principled, and humble. That's not what Jesus is trying to teach here. That, that the children of this, this world, of this generation, have more biblical wisdom than the children of light. Much rather they have more worldly wisdom than we sometimes have biblical wisdom. He continues in verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Wow, this stuff just gets stranger and stranger, doesn't it? Mammon, a word which means riches, wealth, the things of this world. It speaks of the goods of this world. Jesus calls it mammon of unrighteousness. The things which in this life are just this life. They have no element of righteousness to them. They are just what they are. They are going to be here and then they're going to burn. 
the mammon of unrighteousness, money, possessions, luxuries, food, amusements. When Jesus says, make yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, this is what he's saying. He says, in the same way the steward used the resources at his disposal at that moment to provide for his future. What resource did the steward have at his disposal? Well, he had his master's debt, right? And the same way that the man used the resources at his disposal for this very temporary time before he was fired to his advantage for his future benefit. So, too, God is calling for us to use the resources at our disposal today to provide for your eternal home. May May I explain it this way? The scriptures call this vessel that we're in a body of sin. Right? We have a sin nature. It's not going away. It didn't go away when you got saved. It's not going to go away until the resurrection or until you die. That's when you're finally released from this sin nature. You've got it. It's in here. This vessel is a, a, a vessel of flesh. It is, we have feet of clay. We are sinful. But this mammon of unrighteousness can be used to lay up treasure in heaven, can't it? The Bible calls money filthy lucre. The Bible speaks quite a bit about the rich and money and the love of money being the root of all evil. Not money itself, granted, the love of money. It's not that you have money, the problem's when money has you, right? The love of money being the root of all evil. But what can money do? You can take that mammon of unrighteousness and you can invest it into the kingdom of heaven, can't you? And lay up treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying, make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Don't let mammon of unrighteousness control you. Don't love the mammon of unrighteousness, but make friends because that mammon of unrighteousness can help you be received in glory into everlasting habitations. Because you can invest that mammon of unrighteousness into eternity. And then it will usher you into heaven with glory. When you fail, he says, when you die, and there will be a day that you die, right? That day, the day your Lord releases you from stewardship, on that day, the things which you did in preparation for eternal life will go before you. Every Everything, every righteous deed. Every act of forgiveness or mercy, every kindness on the innocent and the weak, every step of faith and obedience, every time you use the things on this earth which will surely burn, which will surely pass away to invest in eternity, Jesus says you're doing a good thing. Like that unjust steward who used every resource at his disposal in order to invest in his future, even though he was not a good man and he didn't do a good thing by his steward. That's not the point of the parable, right? The point of the parable is he at least had enough initiative to do something. Jesus says at least have enough uh, enough initiative to take the unrighteous mammon that is around you and use it for eternity. This is a hard one, isn't it? It's a hard one to wrap your mind around. He's using all of these negative things to try to teach positive lessons. I hope it's making sense. On the day that you fail... These treasures will receive you into everlasting life. You will not only enter heaven by faith in Jesus Christ, but you will enter abundantly. Use the mammon, but serve God. Jesus will say as much as he continues. Verse 10. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Jesus lays out a great principle. Faithfulness begets faithfulness. A man faithful in the little things isn't faithful because they're the little things. A man faithful in the big things isn't faithful because he's because they're big things. Faithfulness 
is faithfulness. Faithful people are faithful people. If you can't be counted faithful over the little that God has given you in this life, to take the unrighteous mammon that you have in this life, however little or however much it is, and invest it into eternity, don't expect God to give you great things in the life to come. And make no mistake, He is going to give good things in the life to come. Those treasures, those riches, those rewards, they go to the faithful. Which means your life really matters. If I can't trust my children with their toys, I'm not going to trust them with my tools. If they're going to break their toys, I'm not going to let them break my tools. If I can't trust my children with their books, I'm certainly not going to let them borrow one of my books. If they're going to break their books, I'm not going to let them break my books. As they get older, if I can't trust my children with their possessions, I'm not going to trust them with my car. If at work your boss can't trust you with the stapler... He's not going to trust you with the payroll, right? Do you see how this works? Faithfulness begets faithfulness. And if God can't trust you to take your time and your talents and your treasures in this life and invest them into eternity now, don't think for a minute he'll trust you with the treasures of the life to come. This life matters. Verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, make friends with that stuff. Use it for God's glory. Because if you don't show yourself faithful with the unrighteous mammon that God has given you in this life, who will commit unto your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? It's an interesting Reality when you understand that everything we have in this life is a gift from God and borrowed, right? Your money is God's money that he's put you in charge of. Your time is God's time that he's put you in. He's let you borrow for a time. The Bible implies here that there's coming a day when God is going to give you something of your very own. Completely your own. But who will give you that which is your own if you're not faithful with that, with that which is another man's? Who will commit to you true riches if you're not faithful in the unjust, unrighteous mammon? If you can't be faithful in the little stuff that God has lent you for this life, will He really give you riches in the life to come? Do you serve things or do you serve God with things? That's the question. And you can't have it both ways. Final verse of our exposition this evening, Jesus says as much. I'm going backwards in time again. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve both. Make a friend of unrighteous mammon. Use it to serve God because you can't serve the mammon and serve God. You can have the mammon and serve God, but you can't serve the mammon and serve God. You can't love the things of this world, live for the things of this world, take no consideration for the responsibilities which lay up for you treasure in heaven, and then turn around and expect those treasures anyway. And believe me, you want these treasures. And if you don't get these treasures, somehow, some way, you'll regret it. I don't know what that means, but that's what Jesus is telling us here. You want these. You want these. These promises, these treasures, that which is laid up in heaven for you. 
But you can't serve God and mammon. You can't be loyal to two masters at the same time. You can't serve God and the world simultaneously because one is going that way and the other is going this way. And you just can't do that. If you're following the things of this world, you're not following Christ. If you're following Christ, you're not following the things of this world. If your love is on this world, your love is not on the world to come. And if your love is on the world to come, your love is not on this world. And you can't have it both ways. And this life matters. Let's take some time to apply this evening. Point number one, this life matters. Eternal rewards really do depend on your actions today. Remember, I am not talking about salvation here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. The only thing you need to do is to look and live, to receive the gift. But as a child of light, what you do will determine your eternal rewards. Paul taught it regularly. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 3 already. Let's walk through it, verses 5 to 15. Paul says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Remember, Paul is rebuking the church here for separating themselves into factions. I'm Paul's followers. I'm Apollos' followers. I'm Cephas. That's Peter. I'm Peter's followers. And they were all trying to claim one-upsmanship on each other by following a different representative of the same Lord, right? We do this today, by the way, right? So let's not. I have planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is it is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth Thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, every believer's foundation is Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your foundation, you're not in the faith. So that's the foundation. But then we get to what is built on top of that foundation. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, Thereupon he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He himself will be saved, but his works will be burned. He'll have nothing to show for his life. Jesus, uh, Paul here is speaking to believers. We know that because he started with the foundation, right? You have a foundation. If you don't have a foundation, then you don't have a part in this conversation that Paul's having. But if you have the foundation of Jesus Christ, Paul says, then you're building. The rest of your life is building. You are building something. And it's either wood, hay, and stubble, or it's gold, silver, and precious stones. And one day God is going to judge your works, and the wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn up. And the gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. And whatsoever remains, that is your reward that you will receive. And if it's burned, well, you'll be saved, yet so as by fire. The fire of God's judgment and and the reality of loss will usher you into 
the kingdom. Paul would tell Timothy soon before his death, 2 Timothy 2, Paul's death that would be, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrown the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Here it, here it comes. This is the part where, where we're, we're driving toward here. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver and of silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Paul calls upon Timothy not to waste his time with things that don't matter, vain and profane babbling, questions that don't profit. The church is caught up on a lot of those today. Paul says, as a pastor, don't get caught up in that stuff because it's empty. It's not doing anything for anybody. And he warns, he says this, in a great house there are vessels of gold and silver and there are vessels of wood and of clay. Now they're both in the house, right? Just as there's a foundation that's laid and then on it is gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. They're both in the house. But the vessels of gold and of silver are far more honorable than the vessels of wood and of clay. Wood and of clay would be the vessels that you would use when it's just you and your kids. And you don't want them to break things. The gold and silver you would pull out for special occasions. You would treat them with more care. You would approach them with more love. You would use them when things need to be more dignified. And you, as the child of light, can be a vessel of gold and silver. But you can also be a vessel of wood or clay. And so Paul says, you can be a vessel of greater honor in the kingdom or you can be an, a vessel of lesser honor in the kingdom. And if you will purge yourself of these, what are these? The questions that are foolish, that engender strife, that have no purpose, that uh, the, the, the false doctrine that would overthrow the faith of some, as such were Hymenaeus and Philetus. If you purge yourself of that junk, of the dead weight, and you focus upon the eternity and the things that matter, you will be a vessel unto honor. My favorite one is Peter. We're going to be there in a little while in Second Peter. We're studying it on Tuesday nights. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Peter says this, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I love this next part. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Here it is. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
You have faith in Jesus Christ? Great. I hope you do. I thank God that we have the gospel, that we can know the gospel, that our young people often are saved at a young age because they're surrounded with the gospel. Now, because this life matters, Peter says, build on top of your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity, invest in the world to come. Use this world's treasure, the unrighteous man, and make friends with it so that you can use it for the world to come so that you can invest it in eternity. And if you do, Peter says, you'll never be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if you go back a little bit farther in second Peter, it's the great and precious promises, which God has promised us and prepared for us in the life that is to come. If you fail, Peter says, You do so because you're blind and you don't see afar off because you're not thinking because you don't have enough foresight to look into the future and to say there's a future that I need to be looking toward. You're so busy living in today that you're not investing in tomorrow. He says you're nearsighted and you need to start to look a little bit farther out and you need to start to invest in a little bit farther out. So give diligence to live within your calling and election. We'll talk about that on a Tuesday night here soon. Dig into it. Uh, because if you do these things first, you'll never fall. By the way, that's not saying you're calling an election of salvation. Salvation is already a given. That's not what election in the Bible is about. Election in the Bible is never unto salvation. When If you look at it, it's always unto purpose, unto purpose. We are an elect group unto a purpose. I joined that election when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. We are elect unto a purpose. That purpose is to be rightly related to God so that I can show the world how to be rightly related to God. Make that calling and election sure. That is my calling. That is my election. Make it sure by adding to your faith. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. If you do these things first, you'll never fall. You'll remain steady and consistent in your relationship with the Lord. Second, you will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is calling us unto here in this parable, which is a hard one. He's calling us unto an abundant entrance to think enough to say there's coming a day where I am going to die and I am a child of light, which means I'm going into this kingdom and so I better start preparing for it because even that steward who is unjust has enough sense to prepare for the future when he knows he's out of a job. So when you know that you're going to die one day, have enough sense, have at least the wisdom to say, let's prepare for it a little bit. That's what Jesus is saying. And finally, in this point, I would like for us to work our way back to the words of our Lord on the sermon uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, be focused, thy whole body will be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, if it wanders, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Here it is again. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Skip to verse 31. Therefore, take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but rather, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. What is he saying there? Invest in eternity. Make friends of righteous mammon for the purpose of investing in eternity. Have enough forethought, have enough vision to say there's coming a day where I'm going to leave this earth and then I've got a long eternity to live with the rewards that I have built from my life. So lay it up. Invest. Dedicate yourself to use that mammon to the glory of the Lord and invest in the world to come. First point, this life matters. Eternal rewards really do depend upon your actions today. Point number two, this life matters. Question. Does it matter to you? Only one life to live for the Savior. In Psalm 90, Moses recorded the reality of death. And then he had a prayer for the Lord. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That's biblical wisdom. That's the one we talked about this morning. The one that fears the Lord and obeys him. Our days are numbered. Are you numbering your days? Do you realize that life is short and eternity is long? Are you investing in the most good? Third and final point. First, this life matters. Eternal rewards really do depend on your actions. Second's a question. This life matters. Does it matter to you? Third, may I just exhort you? This life matters. It's time to choose a side. God and mammon. You can't have it both ways. Now, maybe you've already cho chosen a side. If you've already chosen a side, I hope you've chosen God. And if you've chosen God, praise the Lord for that. Be encouraged. May this message give you a kick to keep going. But it's time to choose. It's time to renew our dedication to the Lord. Joshua once told the people of Israel at the end of his days, if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose ye this day whom ye will serve whether the gods which your forefathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. He said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God is not twisting anybody's arm to serve him. Even as a believer, God does not hold your decision to accept him over your head and say, remember, you're obligated to me. It's not like that. That's not grace. We are under grace. It's a free gift, which we don't deserve. But Jesus does say this. There's coming a day when you're going to enter eternity. And what you enter with 
is not going to be the unrighteous mammon. It's going to be with the things that you did with that unrighteous mammon for me. So make friends of the unrighteous mammon, but don't serve the unrighteous mammon. And that's the point of Jesus' words today. Even the unrighteous servant will have enough initiative to provide for his own future when he realizes he's in a tough spot. But will you, as a child of light, have enough, enough initiative to provide for your own? Or, if I may ask it bluntly, are you a spiritual bum? Choose ye this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua said. A hard parable, a difficult message, but one which the children of light need to hear. Jesus spent chapter 15 telling the Pharisees that they were resenting those that came to the light and telling them that's a problem. Now he turns to his disciples in chapter 16 and he says, you need to get serious. You're in. You're a child of light. You've been redeemed. Are you living this life in light of what is to come? Will you have an abundant entrance when you enter the kingdom? It's the opportunity we each have, but it is the choice which we each will make. Because there's God on one side and there's mammon on the other. And no man can serve them both. You can only serve one or the other. Who are you serving this evening? Let's close in prayer.